Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. A quick bit of housekeeping before we jump into this week's conversation, and that is that I just recently posted a new video to my YouTube channel called Disruptive Technologies in Architecture, and it was a presentation that I gave in November 2020 to AIA Palm Beach chapter, and I thought it turned out really well. So they were kind enough to share that video recording with me. I then recorded a new intro and a final thoughts and comments at the end of the video, put it all together, put in some chapter markers, and I wanted to make sure that everybody here got the opportunity to check that out. So head on over to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash etroxel, and you'll find that video right there, and I will also have a link to it in the show notes. Other than that, I think the only other thing that I wanted to mention was the last episode with Dave Fano was really well received. I got a lot of great comments, so if you haven't had the chance to listen to that one yet, I really recommend it, and it seems other people do too. So head over to the website at gablemedia.com, that's G-A-B-L, media.com, slash shows slash trxl and you can listen to all the episodes but really uh recommend that last one with dave fano so thanks again to dave for having such a great conversation all right i think that that covers the housekeeping items that needed to be taken care of let's get into this episode so i was lucky enough to have a conversation with violet whitney violet is a senior project manager at sidewalk labs which is a google thing And she is also an adjunct assistant professor at Columbia Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. And I don't remember where I saw this little description. It was written by her. Sorry, I can't cite the source. But she mentions that she's interested in spatial technology, design computation, organizational behavior, equity, and GIFs. Ah, yes, of course, the GIFs. All right, so that's a great synopsis of Violet. She's also spent 14 years according to her LinkedIn profile, in architecture, engineering, and construction, focusing on integrative technologies. So in this episode, we get into the courses that she's been teaching, which focus a lot around enabling students to explore and invent ways for people to interact with architecture using the Internet of Things, or IoT, and using lots of great kind of API and processing apps that are out there, like If This Then That, computer vision, sensors, so hardware and software. And in their course, where they explore these technologies, the students get to use their own powers of observation to characterize and design phenomenological aspects of, quote, the great indoors. We talk a lot about that course. We also talked a lot about the work that's being done at Sidewalk Labs with their project that she is managing called Delve, which again, I have a link to in the show notes, and it's worth checking out. So lots of great things in this episode. I really hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Violet Whitney. Well, Violet, thank you for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm I'm super excited about the stuff, the the research and the teaching that you're doing um, all around. Uh, I mean, you can probably explain it better than I can, but I'll take a stab at it. So sensors, IoT, IF, TTT, you know, if this, then that kind of stuff. You're 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 introducing students to think about how people and and maybe potential ways that they can interact with space, which I think is really interesting, and not just thinking about space as a framework for hosting something but a way to for people to actively engage in space so maybe you you can set me straight and and put better a better vocabulary to that than i can but i think uh this is a great way to kind of start our conversation off yeah sure so the class you're talking about is a class that i co-teach with a woman named gabby brainerd that's called measuring the great indoors and we always really struggle with how to describe the class um, because it doesn't seem like there is a distinct field yet that blends architecture with um, physical computing and 
a lot of this IoT and the dynamic changes that happen in an environment, whether that's like sound or light. And so we usually just use a lot of kind of buzzwords and string them together. (laughs) So it's like, uh, we're going to talk about human-computer interaction and user experience, but we're also going to talk about architecture and phenomenology. I can never say that one. I'm surprised I said it right this time. Nice. And so we, we kind of string a lot of those words or phrases together to try and get at what we're going for. But it's kind of like thinking through the technology that changes the way we behave in physical space, but also thinking through a lot of the more conceptual parts of that and the methodologies behind it. So like, how do we borrow from things like service design and user experience and apply that more physically? So not like how you interact with a flat user interface on a screen, but how do you interact with things in your physical environment and how does that change behavior, that kind of thing. Um, And Gabby could probably explain this much better than I could. I'm sure that those buzzwords all help with your SEO. Like people can actually find the course by just (laughs) typing in stuff like this. Just type a bunch of (laughs) of buzzwords. buzzwords. (laughs) (laughs) So what kinds of examples do you have of of that in action? Yeah, it sounds really abstract. Probably easiest way is some of the types of projects that come out of the class. So of year ago, a student looked at how we turn lights on and off in spaces. So usually one person comes into a room and if it's the light is off, they decide to turn it on with a switch. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't take into account social factors or kind of environmental factors. So this student worked with... Um, some computer vision in the program processing using if this, then, and that as well. Maybe I can go back and kind of explain what some of these things are. But use that to create a voting system for turning, changing the color of a light in a room based on how many people were smiling or frowning. So like, how do you have our systems controlled more by environmental and social factors versus Mm. like an individual? Another project this year focused on using a projector with If This and That to create synchronized, what they called synchronized wallpaper. So three students working in three different locations were not so happy with the Zoom interaction. You have to have a kind of scheduled call. You all have to be facing your screen. So instead, what they did was have they all have a projector running in the background all the time that changes the color of a wall. And every time one of them would go out of view of their camera, everyone's wall color changed. Hmm. So it's a way of kind of syncing one another up with like who's at their computer when and trying to create some of the more like ambient interactions that are less maybe scheduled or structured to be connected virtually across spaces. Interesting. It, it, what's interesting to me about this, there's a few things. I mean, and, and I, yeah, I think we should probably go back and talk about what some of these tools are that you're using because they're the things enabling this to happen, right? Um, and what's interesting to me from that standpoint is that students are kind of coming out of school with a much deeper understanding of what's available to them as a tool set to drive things like this, whereas people who are maybe out in the field or have been for a longer period of time just don't even have an awareness of what's possible with these kinds of things. Um, So I think that that's really interesting because it goes way beyond just like the tools that we use to model a space, which is typically what the tool set of an architect is, is based on. So these are other like deeper level UI, UX kind of parts of how people interact with buildings rather than just what the building looks and feels like from a purely spatial point of view, which is based on light and shadow and warmth and cool and environmental factors and things like that. So, wow, there's a lot there maybe to unpack. But then also just thinking about how there is so much in the evolution of people on how to turn lights on and off, right? To kind of take it back to this very basic level of now looking at additional ways to do that based on 
people's mood, which gets expressed through body language, which a computer is watching for and reacting to and changing an environmental cue so that other people might start to understand what other people are thinking or feeling is like that that's just kind of blowing my mind right now like there's so (laughs) many layers and possibilities there and whether those are like applicable or not in the grander scheme of things like this is leading down a new path of architectural interface that people have Mm -hmm. with it that i don't think anybody's you know this isn't the kind of thing that i grew up ever this never came across our plate you know so it's very interesting to me to kind of hear about this Yeah, Gabby gives a good intro in the class, which is talking about just how much of our lives we actually spend indoors. Um, It's like a 90% or is it, is that that a, it's a a really high percent. I can't remember the stat, but it's a lot. It's a lot of percent, yeah. Especially this year. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But she talks about how much time we spend indoors and the fact that we, as, um, Designers and architects especially often think about the outside of the building, Mm -hmm. but not only that, we really think about it in a kind of fixed state as a static object. When we, when we draw it, we don't draw the people moving around in it. And if we do, it's kind of like um, a populated entourage of people in a kind of fixed moment of its ideal state. It's a very diverse rendering. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, we were really interested in like the occupancy and the use and behavior over time, the the interior and how it changes and adapts over time. And I think what's like really interesting and exciting about the potential of more dynamic systems. Um, and I hate using the term smart home products, but it is kind of where smart home products haven't gone yet. Um, there's an ability to, think about the design of the indoor space in terms of interactions and behavior, not in terms of maybe like trying to get away a bit from the aesthetics. Not that the aesthetics aren't important because even in this wallpaper project, um, it really is a visual thing, but it's, it's not the way it looks for a like Instagram or Pinterest post. It's like how it feels. <laughs> it's interesting because it kind of democratizes potentially, I guess, the use of space by because everybody has a different experience. It gets designed one way with maybe a hypothesis about what that experience might be. But the fact is, if you put two people in that space, they are going to experience it differently based on internal factors and potentially spatial or external factors. People have different tastes. People have different mannerisms. People have different physical barriers, you know, some, but like I'm looking through glasses, other people don't have to, some people have hearing apparatus, other people don't need that. Um, and so what it is interesting to kind of think of the building as always this static environment, which architects have tended to do over forever. When in fact, like the experience is never static. It's always different. It depends what time of day, what day of the year, who's in it, how many people are in it. What are the acoustics like? It's like there's so many layers to that. And, and you know, going back to your original mention of the title of the course, measuring the great indoors, you're not even just measuring the space, but you're measuring what's going on with the occupants of that space. And to take that to, you know, wherever you guys plan on taking that, it seems to me like this is new territory for architects because often the design is a hypothesis. We've talked about that on this podcast before and never really visited after the fact there might be a post-occupancy survey and there might be some firms that are doing long-term analysis based on building systems and sensor data and things like that. But for the most part, they're not. Mm -hmm. And they're not really looking at it from that varied of viewpoint where everybody has a different experience. And how do you collect that data? How do you report on that data? It seems to me like a, a huge mountainous limitless potential there but also like kind of daunting and so it's like what is the saying what what gets measured is what you can manage it's something like that right it's like Mm -hmm. oh my gosh if you measure everything then what it's it does seem kind of like a daunting task but it's really interesting study yeah i think one thing that's interesting is we started the class calling it measuring the great indoors because we were um gabby comes from 
the building sciences side and has done a lot of work around testing the performance of buildings and the envelopes of buildings. And so we originally started with the idea that we were really going to sense and measure the occupancy behavior and what that's like. And quickly, as we got into the class, we never renamed the class, but started to focus a lot more on the interactions and the environmental changes that can be triggered based on measurements. So less about like, let's find out where people are hanging out during the day and make some decision. Less that, less of like kind of trying to get a research understanding of occupancy behavior and more like what are the potential types of interactions we can have and environmental factors that can change based on these new types of tools that's being able to measure things like occupancy mood, the temperature outside, the temperature inside, the day of the year it is. The you know, There's all kinds of thresholds you can use mm-hmm. to trigger a change somewhere. How often are your students coming to you guys with things that you've never heard of or is it is that rare all the time yeah all the time yeah yeah so another project a group of students decided they wanted to make a um something akin to a chat bot um not 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 a chat bot a um a twitter bot Mm -hmm. but they wanted to have a piece of like bot poetry basically a poem that's automatically generated mm-hmm. read to them every time one of the students in this group. So it was a group of three students. Anytime one of them turned the light off, they wanted everyone to hear the same poem that was intended at the, I think the, it was a haiku that was focused on like the beauty of their indoor environment. Mm-hmm. And so in order to do that, they had to put together a, a skill for the Amazon Echo. So they like created some, they found this software that I didn't know about to build this skill. So I think there's a lot of like new technologies that they're spearheading and figuring out how to work, but then also they're just using the technologies and the hardware in really creative ways that I wouldn't think about. Some other students like did a project where they were inflating a mattress or inflating uh something that went in front of their computer to get them to stop working (laughs) when they had spent a certain amount of time on their computer. So I don't know. It's just people are more creative. That seems inappropriate in an architectural department. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It goes against policy. (laughs) (laughs) We got to change that. No, yeah, please don't. The, the interesting (laughs) thing about, about these tools and whether they're hardware or software is that they are pieces to a puzzle that nobody knows what that puzzle actually looks like. And so you've got all these APIs out there and you've got if this, then that, or Zapier or any number of these kind of online tools that start to hook into various services and various platforms, whether those are hardware or software. And like, that's exactly what it is. Like all these little pieces puzzle together to create a platform for which there is no defined use, right? It is like figure, figure, like you design what you think it could be used for. And that's recyclable. It's kind of, you know, then available to a larger audience to tweak. And it's very open source in nature, right? Whereas, as, um, you know, I, I've used this example on the, on the show in the past. It's like Apple made the iPad and they're like, this feels right. We don't know what you're going to do with it but it feels right. Like it gets you away from a desk. You can hold this thing this way or this way. It's a piece of glass where it just, it's, it's job is to get out of the way and then let developers do something with it, make apps that we've never even thought of because of that different form factor. And I could see that kind of attitude being applied here where it's like, you guys don't even know what all the tools are available and it would be impossible to keep track of anyway. Like I've been to, the, there's a, a, a great site online for Willow, which is kind of like a microsoft um digital twins kind of a thing. And they, they just show all the hardware that you could put in your building. And it's like, that list is enormous. <laughs> it is absolutely yeah. enormous. And then you layer software on that. 
and how these things can connect and talk to each other and again like use different pieces to create a different recipe that can do a different thing like the possibilities are just endless there yeah and what's what's really funny is each one of those systems is really designed for something very specific and i'm not super impressed by where smart home products currently are Mm -hmm. it's like oh i can optimize the temperature in the room or i can uh you know there's not (laughs) i like my partner just turned on all the lights with Mm -hmm. our smart home system okay (laughs) um (laughs) oh you can turn the lights on yeah that's Um, what i use it for i turn lights on and off yeah (laughs) yeah but it's like so what right um but what's cool is you know usually those are really designed for their own environment but services like if this and that allows you to get different smart home products to talk to each other so you can make these recipes that say make some trigger that's a threshold that mm-hmm. could be like if a person walks in a room or if the temperature changes in Miami <laughs> or whatever yeah. um then do this thing mm-hmm. you can then create I think more useful logic or more interesting set of behavior for for a system. Yeah, you use the magic word, which is logic, right? I think that that is when when people create a recipe that is based on logic, which is you know like the, some threshold that you're talking about. Like this thing is on my calendar, and every time there's this thing on my calendar, turn these lights on because I'm going to record a podcast so that mm-hmm. I can see the other per- or they can see me, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. It's very practical it's automated it's based on a, a factor that that i have some control over but i don't need to do eight different things to get ready to do that i only had to have an entry in my calendar to do it mm-hmm. when people see things like that I, it gets super interesting right because mm-hmm. they're like oh like it gets their gears turning i always like that that part of it and i can imagine with your students you're kind of doing that right you're you're getting their gears turning to number one just kind of have an awareness of what the possibilities are but then at some point they're going to be like in the shower and they're going to be like whoa i just had this amazing idea of a series of actions that i want to put in place based on this new trigger that i thought of that that i haven't seen anybody else use and Mm -hmm. and for for it to make its way back into like how we design spaces and how people interact with spaces to me is is pretty a pretty incredible kind of overall overarching idea for people then to be designing potential ways for people to interact with space yeah totally i think it just makes a lot of sense that architects and spatial designers would be designing more with these technologies that are being developed and i like i i can't remember if we were talking about this before but i feel like the only reason that our interactions with zoom or in this flat computer and that we have smart home products that are basically a piece of metal that sits somewhere that doesn't really interact with other things or mm-hmm. with the physical space is because um, they weren't really designed by architects or spatial designers. Mm-hmm. People thought through a very limited set of interactions. They didn't really think contextually about how does this behavior of, or my experience of this thing change based on the physical environment that I'm in and how does it interact with the physical environment? So I think that technology would look a lot different in the future if um, spatial thinkers and designers were working on those problems. So it seems like you guys are directly addressing that part of it, right? You're, you're creating a way for people to enter the workforce with that kind of thinking, at least as a tool they could grab onto. How? What other ways are you guys u- using this course or maybe these students to expose this out to a larger audience? Is there is there anything in kind of in action that you guys are are using to try to get that more exposure in at least AEC or not? Not yet. I feel like we should. <laughs> I mean, we haven't we haven't really been public about the uh, or that public about the class. Though we did create a website. Yeah, right. You've but, got a you've got a website on Medium. Like you, it doesn't really get more public <laughs> than that, but but your whole syllabus is there. I mean, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because I think it's fascinating mm-hmm. to look through it and and to see what the students are posting on there for their their coursework and their experimentation, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I love that you guys are making that public because 
that is probably the first piece in that kind of exposure process to get get it out there. But obviously, nobody's signing any NDAs here, <laughs> right? This is this is like these students are are if if not now, eventually going out into the workforce. Yeah, totally. Right. I think that is probably the place where I think this has more lasting impact. It really feels like we had a really small class size this year, but the students that were in our class, I can really imagine the ways that this is impacting their own view of what they can do in the future and the types of careers they can pursue. And now all of a sudden it's being more open that I might want to work at something like a technology company, or if I'm designing a space, maybe I can think through the f- the more phenomenological aspects, and the- or I'm equipped to work with technology or at a technology company because I can, I actually understand the systems and how they talk to one another. I think that's a key factor right there is just being moving beyond being a tool user to a tool maker or a coder, mm-hmm. or you know, being able to piece these pieces of puzzles together create these recipes that are you know that's that to me is kind of the new frontier for students graduating architecture and and many other other areas as well it it just seems like being able to actually create the tools to do the things that you're talking about here is a huge step in the right direction Mm -hmm. and something employers should be looking for specifically right is is people who 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 are just not just off-the-shelf software users yeah definitely and I think that both technology companies need spatial designers in them um, to think, to recognize a lot of their problems as spatial mm. and think through the logistics of how things move th- through space. Um, like an example I like to use a lot is Amazon, Yelp, Seamless, all of these companies are thinking through how things move through space over time. And another class I've been teaching is really about simulating spatial behavior. So we build these agent-based models and create simulations about how systems behave, whether that's like how people move, how a location changes over time, really thinking about like the behavior Mm -hmm. of a system. And so, you know, students coming from that background are now thinking a lot about data visualization in a very spatial way that becomes useful for careers along that line of thought. Like how might a team at Amazon or Seamless change when they can visualize where their orders are going and when certain interactions or touch points happen throughout a process, Um, being able to kind of visualize and design that whole system and think about it in time and space is a major skill set that I think architects have and can bring to technology. And then, and then personalizing it because people behave differently from, from others. Right. So yeah, it seems to me like a lot of the companies that we're talking about are really interested in all of those data points to start to build those customizations based on your personal preferences, which is scary, but also like there's a huge advantage to it as well. Right. Like, the whole thing about personalized ads on various platforms is like, they know a lot about me, but they're also showing me stuff relevant to me. Right. And so there's a trade-off there that I think is, is an interesting one. Like there's definitely kind of that privacy security, like, Oh, they know too much about me, but at the same time, like it's way more useful for me to see this than the stuff I don't want to see. Yeah. I'm sure everyone has their own kind of pain points where it's like you buy mayo on amazon and then all of a sudden they think you want three tubs of mayo you're, right you're like i just bought like, that I, I just bought mayo <laughs> this yeah. is not a multi-time right. purchase it's not that smart yet yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i don't I, I think that there's a lot of things we have to work out about what we measure and how we bucket behaviors into some generalized statement about how a person is thought to behave or interact. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually uh, really dangerous, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, actually, I'm um, sorry, now I'm going off on a tangent, but. Nope, that's what this show's about. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
we were talking about how much recommendation systems really change what someone sees and puts them in a niche. And we're in this world right now where everyone really is living in their own world in a way because right. you get different information. Um, and I think that becomes more dangerous now. I guess this has always been there, but there are very spatial implications to the recommendations you get. So if I get the same notifications for certain types of restaurants based on the types of things I've seen, then now all of a sudden people are going to the same restaurants as other people in their filter bubble. Mm -hmm. So you start to get like very spatialized filter bubbles. Mm. And I think when we start to think about these dynamic systems, like lighting and sounds being responsive or customized to individuals based on which kind of recommendation engine or bubble that they're in, you can imagine, I mean, I'm like laying out a very dystopian world. I don't think this is necessarily where it's headed, but I think we should be aware Mm -hmm. um, that as architects and designers, we should be thinking through how to design these systems so that they don't behave that way. Yeah, because it's actually driving their behavior is is kind of the danger there, right? Rather than the other way around where they're driving the algorithms, it's it's kind of like the opposite side of that, where it's pushing people into certain pathways that they may or may not have found on their own, but it's starting to really hone that into a specific, a more specific way of interacting with a certain place or whatever. And it's kind of narrowing that view rather than exposing them to other options potentially. Yeah, exactly. So I think when we design systems, the aim should be to actually diversify the choices that someone has versus trying to reinforce. <laughs> yeah, push people into some optimized behavior that right. they like will always see the same people, go to the same places that other people like them would see it's interesting behaviorally right because like there's so much i mean if you just look at news sources online and people the the reason why people go there is because those those news sources it, it's confirmation bias right and and people are mm -hmm. comfortable with that right like that drives comfort uh that is a very interesting kind of side effect of of the algorithmic kind of data collection and bucketizing of your your um likes and dislikes into very kind of black and white issues when it is very much a, a, a gradient and and mm -hmm. it's not very nuanced I, I think is what you're getting at like it it if you're going if you if you get put into a lane because of your preferences and that lane feels even more comfortable every time you do it therefore like it's not exposing you to more options it's it's letting it's driving you to continually behave in that same way and that could mm -hmm. be dangerous yeah yeah one thing that seems somewhat promising about being able to design with smart home products and work with things like if this and that and things like processing that are um, more simple programming environments mm -hmm. is that it's a more democratized way of designing. It's not like everyone gets the same recipe and, you know, everyone's light switch kind of <laughs> behaves the same way. but. um it's the lack of standards, right, that creates this opportunities for tinkering, right, and making and, yeah, having some mastery yeah. over your domain that is not just what's been given to you. Yeah, exactly. So there's some potential to kind of change the interactions that you have or the types of behaviors that you have to not be some kind of off the shelf. Uh, we think you fit in this bucket, so we gave you this recipe kind of thing. <laughs> I think that's that's the coolest thing to me about a lot of these is number one they're super affordable for the most part, right? I'm not going to say everybody can afford all this stuff cuz I even I can't I don't like I don't want to spend all the money to have a computer chip in every light switch and every light socket, right? And every outlet. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But at the same time like it does give me kind of this ability to bypass what was given to me in this house that was built in 1947 to make this light yeah. switch do something that it was never wired for, right? And it gives me the ability to, um, and it's interesting because we're starting to see this trend, right? Where it's going around the traditional gatekeepers, right? This is totally out of the, the future of the professions book by the Suskins, where they talk about the democratization of, of data and people creating platforms, which 
which dethroned the gatekeepers for being the sole possessor of information. So now I don't have to go to an electrician because I can swap out my light switch with this new switch and have it wirelessly talk to this one on the other side of the house and turn on my Christmas tree or have that hooked up to some timer or threshold um, that you were talking about earlier. And it gives me the ability as a do-it-yourselfer to do things that that are, I think, you know, 50 years ago would have been thought as like magical superpowers, like voodoo. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting stuff. Yeah. it's. I'm surprised by, we're really changing the way we interact with homes right now mm-hmm. during COVID um, and the different types of ways we need our space to function, but the technology and the physical technology, the the like walls and doors aren't meant to operate this way or like homes aren't really built for being working spaces. Um, and so people are finding all kinds of solutions, trying to kind of hack together their own solutions to make that work. So I think that there's a lot of um, kind of potential innovation to happen out of trying to find a way for spaces to flex and do other things. Yeah. And it seems like it really needs to be customized or individuals have the ability to change what that recipe is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked earlier, I think, I don't know if it was before we actually formally started recording or not now, but you talked about potential additional or other choices for graduates to pursue beyond or adjacent to architecture. So what are those kinds of things? I mean, I, I feel like all of this is kind of pointing us down this road that mm-hmm. of potential answers here, but wh- what other kinds of things are you guys seeing happen with students who are going through either traditional or non-traditional or a mix of architectural education um, and, and where they actually end up, whether that's in practice or adjacent to or outside of the practice? Yeah, well, I think... The roles that people are going into are still somewhat evolving. Like people are going into creative technologist roles or data visualization roles, or a lot of folks are going into user experience design or product design. Um, I've gone into product management, which is more business focused. And I think even within each of those role types, I think those roles have some ways to go in the future to be a bit more diversified. Like I think that there are roles within technology companies that probably don't exist yet, or like the, I guess the title, the correct title doesn't exist yet where it's like someone might be going into a product design role, um, but they might be also thinking through more spatial aspects that relate to service design. But like, what do you call that? And some people end up in these like kind of creative technologist roles because they're doing kind of creative programming, but that doesn't quite capture the spatial aspect. So I think people are going into a lot of these more cross-disciplinary fields um, and sometimes pushing themselves or melding themselves into a role that's really focused on technology as it existed a few years ago, but they're hasn't yet really been a carved out role for these more spatial roles related to technology. Seems like a huge opportunity for existing architectural firms, but I have to assume that the reason why people are not looking there is because they don't, those roles don't exist there either. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually the roles I'm kind of talking about are roles that exist in like architecture, engineering, construction tech companies. Mm -hmm like AEC tech Mm -hmm. um, or roles that exist at big tech companies or small startups that are, don't realize they're related to the built environment, but they are like seamless or Amazon. And I think, I think more and more you're seeing people coming out of school with a design or architecture background and they don't want to make an architect salary after having gone to school for seven years, mm-hmm. they're programming, they're putting together really interesting like systems-based projects that might have business value. 
and then they're looking at the architecture field and i i think the architecture field has been a little slow to find more lucrative business models but also a bit slow to give enough space for the the types of innovation that maybe students are interested in. So I'm seeing a lot of people um, trying to get out of architecture. I'm doing air quotes. Before the, even getting into it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm doing air quotes for getting out of architecture right. because I, I don't really feel like what I'm talking about should be considered getting out of architecture. It seems like it's very much architecture to me. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of trying to coin that as also part of what architects do. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting, I think, because it's kind of a should be a wake up call to the profession that exists that has been around for quite a long time. I mean, I work at a firm that's been around for 80 years. There are many much older than that um, who have not adopted a, the type of framework to accept those types of roles into their way of doing things. And I think part of it is there's a very kind of wait and see kind of attitude and kind of a very slow moving, you know, it's a big ship. It's hard to move a big ship. There's so many kind of factors involved there, but, but the lack of speed, I think is probably one of the biggest factors mm -hmm. that we're seeing people kind of, you know, jumping ship before they're, or you're, or maybe not jumping ship, but you know, like going somewhere mm -hmm. adjacent um, where, where, it's not fully realized yet and just that willingness to experiment and have a completely different attitude about everything always being in motion rather than being able to rely on the way things have been is a, it's, it's a very different attitude for a lot of a lot of people and i think what's interesting from an architectural profession standpoint is i think that people who have been in it for a long time think that students coming out of school think like they used to as well they think <laughs> that they have those same attitudes about going to work somewhere for a long time and building a career and working on projects that take five to seven years. And that's normal in a, in a world that is moving at a much faster pace, not yeah. just in technology, but in so many other ways as well, logistically, et cetera. Yeah. Something I struggled with when I was working at an architecture firm was just feeling like even maybe this is like a very millennial thing, but the, the scale of impact that I was having at an architecture firm, it was a bit too minimal. So, mm. you know, we would work on a building and we, there was always some kind of social aim, but it felt, it didn't really feel like much impact. It was like one site and there's a culture space, <laughs> like checks the box of yeah. being some social good. But at the same time, like most, of the clients we have is focused on kind of cultural sites or luxury condos doesn't really make you feel like you're making a difference in the world. Mm. And then at the same time, you're working on one side at a time and you look around at the rest of the world. It's where so much of the change we've seen in cities in the last decade is not the influence of new buildings or architecture. It's like, People are using Airbnb and mm -hmm. they're using Seamless and that's changing where people are, how spaces are used. And so it felt like, whoa, these are the things that are changing the way cities behave and changing the way spaces function. Why aren't architects working in this or designing with these things? That on top of the bad pay <laughs> makes yeah. one go out the door. And the know? long hours and... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely the long hours. That's another one. Okay. So I, I, I totally understand the, the idea of having an impact at scale. And I'm wondering then, you know, you're not just teaching, right? You're also working at Google. So what was that decision process like? And and does that fit into this story? I, I kind of assume it does about being able to have this larger impact across various professions, across various cultures, across various locations, things like that? I think going and working at Sidewalk Labs was definitely a strange moment for me because I, I never imagined myself working at a larger company. Mm -hmm. um, but being able to work at a place where we were working on a product that 
has the ability to reach a lot more people felt architects do so many things um, for their own firm or their own company, but they don't really share assets, which I think it holds that whole skill set back. Other people don't have access to it. So like, if you look at this amount of cities that are, or not even cities, like the amount of developments that are unplanned, there's a, most of the world is unplanned. Mm -hmm. Architects are over here fighting over projects for one small project, but I'll do it for less money too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But just being able to create a software product, technology product that can share those types of tools more broadly, I think has a, a much greater ability to reach more places, more individuals, and also has the ability to democratize a lot of what typically has been kind of reserved for people in society that can afford an architect. Yeah. I mean, that to me is like the whole purpose of these types of platforms that you guys are, are working on and making available is, is that you can go in there and you can, I, you know, I hate to say this, but mess around with thing with, with inputs and get outputs and make decisions based on that without ever talking to an architect. Right. And the interesting thing about that is that, you know, architects might not like that, but it's happening whether they like it or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so what's still interesting from, you know, just saying that out loud is that so many architects or firms still choose not to participate in that because it's happening. Like there's no, if this happens, it is happening. Right. And so mm -hmm. when you talk about that democratization and you talk about people having access to tools that can better their environments, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And, and that to me is what makes and, and how that ties into these other platforms like Airbnb and the things that you're talking about where it's giving people agency over their environment is probably one of the biggest shifts that we're ever going to see in our lifetimes for sure regarding space and how people use it especially when you look at like the Ikea generation of do-it-yourselfers and the people who are kind of tinkering with these smart home products and the people who have access to these tools, you're putting together a recipe of agency where people have agency over their environment in so many ways that was never the case before. And so it just makes you wonder why more firms and people in practice aren't jumping into this headfirst, you know, rather than not at all, or, or maybe just dipping a toe into the water. Yeah. I think it's just hard to make uh, those types of changes really quickly. The, For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but totally. I always think of Pixar and the development of all the technology that came about for creating animations. And so when that first came about, everyone was worried, this is going to make um, the development of movies and cartoons uh, really generic. Everything's going to be the same. Mm. And a lot of people were hesitant and animators were hesitant to use computers or any of this type of software for doing movies or designing a story. But what actually ended up happening was not that a bunch of animators went out of business. Um, there were some that probably struggled because they didn't make a change and adopt some of the technologies. But really what you see is like new types of creativity using software products for animation right. that ended up saving these creatives a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of a similar thing is happening right now. There's a really great documentary for all the people stuck indoors right now watching Netflix. What is it called? Pixar. Some documentary on Pixar. Let me find it. Pixar story. Is that it? Maybe that sounds right. Yeah, I, I think that it's super interesting the way so so you framed it as like adopting technology to save time, but they've also been able to show that they can do things they never thought they would ever be able to do, right? And and so there's always kind of this practical side of of tools and technology development and all these things where where yeah, it's going to it, it might save you time. I mean, that was always the the premise of computing, right? Was like 
mm-hmm. you're gonna be sipping my ties on the beach because the computer's doing this <laughs> stuff for I you, want. right? And and then, but that we all know that doesn't happen. Like that, we more effort gets put totally. into the project. We can do new things. We can do things we never thought we could do before. And that is where the innovations actually happen was because because we adopted this thing and because we did save a little bit of time here. It allow us it allowed us to put our efforts elsewhere and develop super realistic, uh, you know, name it, water, physics, like whatever the things are that they're using in, in their animation package to do this kind of stuff and develop custom tools. Um, it's a great model, actually, for architectural practice because animation studios rarely rely on off-the-shelf software right there might be a you know they might be using maya as a as a as an interface but under the Mm -hmm. hood there's so much customization there that they have full-time software developers building these things do you guys do something similar to that with the products that you're working on is it is it like are you developing tools? Obviously, you're you're creating tools as products for other people. But how much of that do you guys think about when it comes to what you're using versus what you're putting into it versus you know custom development? I I, I am I I don't even know how what you guys do operate. So I'm kind of interested to get a little bit of insight into how that actually happens. Yeah. So. The product at Sidewalk Lab is called Delve, and um, it's a generative design master planning software product. Mm -hmm. And the way we really think about it is that when you look at sites, development sites, there's a lot of untapped potential within that site. There's many different directions you could go in terms of creating designs and a bunch of different ways that we evaluate the performance of a site. So that could be the walkability of the site, the daylight, the views, the cost, or the profit on cost. Um, So there are a lot of aspects that are currently measured, but usually by different professionals. And so um, what we do is we generate um, many designs. And if person listening is familiar with generative design, they can fast forward. Um, <laughs> but we, we populate many different types of designs so that you have a whole sea of possibilities versus like looking at one or two at a time. And then we can basically look at the problem statistically, surface the ones that are top performers across all of the types of criteria that someone has. So a big aspect of this is trying to standardize a lot of the elements that are commonly required that you don't want to manually do every time for a new site. Every site is going to have some amount of a building that's going to have some standard dimensions. So you don't want to have to redo a lot of those things. They're kind of basic things needed for a cost model and a daylighting model. So a lot of that part is standardized, but there's a kind of crucial 5 to 10% of that that is unique. And that's where we want to be able to control and allow someone to be able to tweak those parameters mm-hmm. um, so that they're not spending all their time laying out parking or <laughs> doing the stuff that they don't need to redo every single time. Doing door schedules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that there is a lot that can be expedited because it's generalizable Mm -hmm. that allows someone to focus on the kind of larger issues that they care about versus some of the more gritty aspects of design. I'll put a link to delve in the, in the show notes so people can see it in action. Cause I think that's where it gets pretty compelling to watch is, is it in, as it's working, who's, who's your target audience with this product? So currently we're looking at developers, architects, and cities. Mm-hmm. It seems like a pretty urban scale kind of oriented, at least in the the stuff that I've seen. That's currently where it started, but it has more to do with the first customers that we've worked with. Okay. So we do imagine it uh, kind of growing in the capacity of the types of sites we look at in the future. I guess where I think now is with a tool like that to bring it kind of full circle to what you're teaching at Columbia, is there connections between those things? 
all random. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> like in the things that you're interested in, is what what is the common thread there? I think there's a few common threads that I think one is focusing on the actual outcome and the behavior of a place versus the physical object. So, um, Delve is really about designing with the outcomes in mind. So it's like, how do these designs actually perform or behave long-term? It's not about the physical form being a particular thing. And I think that's true in the simulation course I teach. It's really about understanding behavior and performance. And um, likewise, in the measuring the great indoors class, that's really how do indoor spaces behave and change over time. So I think like behavior, time are all major components. And how do we like measure and test and build models around that? Is there any effort going into kind of after these projects are completed? I don't even know if you guys have gotten to that point with with Delve in particular, but it seems like the next frontier is actually measuring to see if the hypothesis was right. You know, and and bringing yeah, that back totally. and using that to reinform the next iterations that happen, so that these buildings do get way smarter than. Yeah, totally. I think that there's like, um, there's another product at Sidewalk Labs um, called uh, Mesa that's really an IoT product that's about measuring building performance, and there's another product called Pebble, which is really about measuring um, parking spaces and transit, so to be able to use. Um, streetscapes more effectively. So I think it's a bit too early for us to connect all those products right now. We're in kind of a few years and developments take so long. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do think that there's a potential to close the loop there. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much information that's lost between architects, between projects. Right. So there's a real potential to, to make sure that the predictions we're making are actually accurate. It, it seems like there's so much potential in the data of the built environment that is up until recent years fairly untapped. And if there are ways to actually connect those dots and bring things full circle so that we get better and not only just get better one project at a time, but at scale, that is like a whole new future. Um, and that's really exciting. So yeah, very cool. Totally. Well, thanks. And for, then just, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was just going to, I wanted to give one more answer to the, to the common thread between them all. Oh, Cause yeah. I think one of, one is the really about the behavior, but the other I think is back to this kind of democratizing aspect or being able to not have people try and do this same thing twice, like an mm-hmm. architect mm-hmm. doing something in their silo and then no one ever sees the work that they did. Um, so Delve like really allows other people to have access to something that usually they wouldn't have access to or in a much more expedited fashion. And I think in the same way, I'm really interested in this IOT space because it also has a real potential for people to uh, design and change their interior spaces that maybe wasn't really possible before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, it seems like you guys are really focused on giving people that agency that we were talking about earlier, right. And giving them control over at least a piece of this, this very complex environmental thing that we're all dealing with as architects, but, but giving people the ability to participate and contribute in that is, is a big deal. And that's not going away. It's only getting to become more and more of a piece of this, you know, equation. So excellent. So uh, I will put links in the show notes to your syllabus on Medium. I will put links to Sidewalk Labs and Delve. Is there anywhere else that you want to point people at on the internet to uh, to connect with you, follow along with what you guys are doing? Um, I'll, hey, that sounds right. I'll share two classes and a link to our product at Sidewalk Labs. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a fantastic conversation and I can't wait to see where you guys go with this. It seems like there's going to be more threads in the future here between all, all of these, you know, between these courses, between the products that you guys are working on. And as you kind of 
hone in on on who's using them the the products specifically at at Google it seems like there's going to be some uh, some really interesting developments coming out of that so can't wait to see it thanks again for taking the time to talk today yeah sure thanks so much I had a lot of fun Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.